Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Welcome back to our section on objects from history, a hundred bloody objects. What do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number six, a fragment of Hitler's Reich Chancellery. Ouch! Beastly ends for beastly people. Infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy, as Julius Caesar, alias Kenneth Williams, shouted as he fell to a flurry of dagger blows in the classic movie Carry On Cleo. Bad things happen to bad people. King Edward II supposedly had a red-hot poker shoved up his rear end. Colonel Gaddafi suffered the indignity of a bayonet in the rear before being shot with his own gold-plated pistol. Forensics show that Richard III also had a blade up his backside, but luckily for him, he was already dead and slung across a horse after the Battle of Bosworth. Everyone gets it in the end. Of course, good people also meet their maker. A Prague courtier fatally collapsed and died when his bladder exploded, as royal protocol forbade him from leaving the table. Today we are talking mainly about the demise of some unsavoury people. James, who have you got for us? Well, it's a smorgasbord of good and bad, Tom. And I think we might as well start with ancient times. In the 7th century BC, there was Chirondas, a Greek lawmaker in Sicily, who came up with a law that no one entering the assembly should carry a weapon of any kind. Unfortunately, he forgot that he was wearing a pocket knife and was promptly done for that and ended up having to kill himself as a result in order to follow the letter of the law. Another lawmaker in the 6th century BC, Sisamnes, he came a bit of a cropper by annoying his Persian overlord and was flayed alive and his skin was used to cover a seat that his son then sat on when he was uh, put in the position of being a judge. So judges and barristers can come to a sticky end. The only person I know who actually used skin to cover chairs was a woman in Africa who who had the pelts of her favourite dogs uh, treated by a taxidermist, and they were used to cover seats. But it doesn't usually happen to lawyers. Maybe it should. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and some others that have come, in, uh, come to a gruesome end in ancient times, sometimes entirely due to their own fault. Uh, the famous Pythagoras of Samos was being pursued by his enemies through the countryside, and... Unfortunately, he came to a field of beans um, and he was violently against beans because he said that they were a thoroughly bad thing according to his teachings. So he refused to run through the field of beans and was then hacked to death by his pursuers. Serves him right for making my maths classes such hell. And being a bit of a baldy myself, I have some sympathy with Aeschylus who, according to Valerius writing at the time, he was killed by a tortoise dropped by an eagle that had mistaken his bald head for a rock, suitable for shattering the shell of the reptile. Pliny, in his Natural History, adds that Aeschylus had been staying outdoors to avert a prophecy that he would be killed by a falling object. Well, I'm going to counter you with two more. 
philosopher Heraclitus was devoured by dogs, having covered himself in manure to try and cure himself from dropsy. And then, of course, there was Mithridates, who annoyed his Persian king uh, by killing the king's brother, Cyrus, and ended up being put in a bag full of insects, scaphism. And uh, he apparently survived for, well, over a fortnight before he succumbed. But that was an old one, the insect one. Quite often you had people pegged out on a roof covered in honey and sort of attacked by wasps and all sort of insects. And it was also a torture used to drive people mad. Well, they weren't always bad, as we've said. Poor old St. Lawrence, the deacon St. Lawrence, was roasted alive on a giant grill during the persecution of Valerian. He joked with his tormentors, turn me over, I'm done on this side. And he's now the patron saint of cooks, chefs and comedians. And actually it's why the Escorial Palace outside Madrid is based on that grid pattern. It's dedicated to St. Lawrence. So, so he, he had the last laugh. So he wasn't just a comedian. He say he wasn't just the patron saint of comedians. He also was uh, he was also the font of architectural style. So now we must come on to the Romans because they set the standard for cruelty and demise. Yes, they did. And it's a lesson for future generations that if you don't have democracy or accountability, if you have absolute power, you're going to have extremely corrupted people in charge. Many of them eventually came a cropper because there's no way of either surviving or making your way or getting on in the political world without overthrowing, violently overthrowing whoever's in charge. And you can see that everywhere from Africa to perhaps potentially Russia in the future, um, in the modern age. And the Romans certainly set the bar at a pretty low level. <laughs> and, uh, and we've sort of come to see them. History, however distorted by later writers, is littered with the corpses, the bloodied remains of emperors who got it wrong, who overreached. Yeah, and not even emperors, people who aspired to be emperors or, or aspired to the, the uh, abilities and honour and dignity of someone like Julius Caesar and uh, never quite got to the top spot. Well, if you look at someone like Crassus in the first century BC, he was the richest man in Rome, extremely powerful, was always manoeuvring against people like Cicero and eventually ended up ruling Rome along with Pompey. And I think in order to prove himself, he ended up going on campaign in Syria against the Parthians. And this was the man who earlier had, of course, put down the slave revolt, had crucified 6,000 slaves along the Via Appia. Uh, I am Spartacus. He certainly gave us that line from the movies and also gave us Life of Brian's I'm Brian and so is my wife. <laughs> so we owe Crassus. But I think he was probably a little insecure under all of that, wanted to prove himself as a general, took on the Parthians, took an army against them, thinking it would be an easy victory. And the Parthians ran circles around him. They killed his son. He ended up going to negotiate terms. It was essentially a trap. He was killed with his party. No one quite knows whether he was alive or dead when they poured molten gold into his mouth. Uh, it's a way of killing that became quite popular in the ancient world. Actually, the Ottomans used to kill people by pouring uh, molten lead 
down their throats. Cheaper, I suppose. It's certainly cheaper. But anyway, poor old Crassus had molten gold poured down his throat. I'm not sure I feel very sorry for him. He sounds like a particularly unpleasant person. Well, that's why the Parthians poured gold down his throat, because he was so rich. They thought he'd appreciate it. And that head of his ended up being used as a theatre prop in future court productions in the Parthian court. So he at least was recycled. <laughs> yeah. And some of the emperors, what, what happened to them? We all know what happened to Julius Caesar. If you go further on in history to 41 AD, of course, you have the death of Caligula. He was particularly insane, particularly mad. He has gone down in history as one of, one of the greats in terms of lunacy. This is a man who pimped his sisters out, had sex with his sisters, who made his horse a consul and priest, and apparently, during a particularly savage games, was getting rather bored, so forced a huge number of the audience into the arena to be torn to pieces by wild animals, because that's what you can do if you're an absolute ruler. But he had his comeuppance and was eventually hacked to pieces by the usual court conspiracy. And uh, a little bit later on, in 68 AD, we had Nero. Nero was another total nutter. And this was the man who used to light his gardens with burning Christians. So it, it wasn't wise to be a Christian at that stage. He also supposedly set Rome alight in order to clear the slums and make way for better buildings. And he probably did that. He murdered his own mother. He murdered his own stepbrother. He kicked his wife Pompeia to death. And then he did an extraordinary thing. He got his men to look for someone who resembled his wife. And he found a young man, Freeman, called Pythagoras, had him castrated first, and married him. Nero apparently dressed as the bride during the wedding ceremony, but later on got his castrated Freeman, Pythagoras, to dress in his wife Pompeia's clothes and float around the palace like that. I think if I'd had my nuts crushed between two bricks to become a eunuch, I think I might have entered the marriage with a with a bit of baggage, or not, as the case may be. No baggage. <laughs> no baggage. <laughs> Nero was eventually forced to commit suicide. Uh, I think they call it an assisted suicide. But like all these emperors who get a bad press, there's usually a political subtext to these things, and political perversion was a coded reference also for bad governance. So you never quite know whether all those stories are true about them. But if they come a cropper, if they have a particularly unpleasant end, there's something going on in the palace. And these Roman palaces were hotbeds of intrigue and cruelty and depravity. There's no doubt about that. And we have to shift on another 100 years to another Roman emperor made famous by the film Gladiator. Yes, we have Commodus. He was a total megalomaniac and, like many of the other emperors, was a total psychopath too. He liked to go into the arena and spear wild animals. He used to fight as a gladiator too, but you can be damn sure, given that he never lost, that the gladiators were told, one, not to scratch him, and two, they were probably given wooden swords, whereas he had everything at his disposal and armour. So he just went into the arena and slaughtered people for the hell of it. 
he was also known to kill people in the audience who weren't laughing at his favorite games and practices in the arena. And he apparently leapt forward once and hacked a senator to pieces with a sword who wasn't laughing at one of his japes, one of his merry japes. He also used to get uh, poor unfortunates with wings glued to their backs to jump from very high columns in order to replicate what happened to Icarus uh, going too close to the sun. So this was a man who was truly mad. And he too had a fairly unpleasant comeuppance. There were court intrigues. He was poisoned. That didn't work. Eventually, in a palace coup, his personal trainer and wrestling partner, Narcissus, went and strangled him in the bath. So I think the lesson is clear to everyone. Don't trust your personal trainer. And to bring it back to the movie Gladiator, Jamie, don't you have a story? I think I've got a couple, actually. The first involves Sir Derek Jacobi, who was stepping out of a theatre when an American woman approached him and asked for his autograph. When he signed his autograph, she kissed him on the shoulder and said, I bet you don't know why I did that. And Derek said, no, I don't. And she said, well, that's because that's the shoulder that supported the butt of Russell Crowe when you carried him out of the stadium at the end of Gladiator. And Derek always says, but I was nowhere near his butt. The gladiators were seven foot tall and I was trailing far below at the back. And there's another story actually about gladiator. When they, when they were filming it, apparently, there's a scene where they throw bread to the crowd and there was a whole host of extras involved. But the bread was so hard that it started breaking noses and smashing people in the face. They had to stop filming for a day as people were hospitalized and carried off with their injuries. Those are the dangers of filming for you. There you go. Before the Christian era and the bread of heaven. And the Emperor Valerian, we've already mentioned him, and the unfortunate St. Lawrence being sawn in half. No, he wasn't being sawn in half. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was being cooked on the griddle. That's Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the ultimate punishment. <laughs> uh, he was around 260, 264. That's when he met his end, and a satisfactory one it was too. Well, he was captured by the Persians. The poor sod ended up as a mounting block used by the Persian king every time he got onto his horse. And when Valerian died, apparently his skin was flayed off and it was dyed red, stuffed with straw and hung in a temple. So the Persians didn't get it all their own way. What about Peroz in 484 AD? Yes, he had a pretty bad end. He led out a vast army. And he was a bit of a natty dresser, wore a pearl in his ear, headed out to take on the Hephalites, who were basically nomads of the steppes. And he thought that his vast Persian army was going to do fine. But he was lured into a trap and charged at the Battle of Herat. And his entire cavalry, with him at the head, fell into a giant ditch, which had been dug by the Hephalites. And he just disappeared. His body was never even found. But it was a shattering disaster for the Persians and seriously undermined their empire. Okay, let's uh, gallop through the Dark Ages, into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Yes, let's do that, Tom. I mean, in 882, Louis III of West Francia, who was only 18 at the time, was pursuing a girl and jumped onto his horse, hit his head on a lintel fell backwards and fractured his skull. So that was the end of his short-lived reign. Then in 892, Sigurd the Mighty, the second Earl of Orkney, 
decapitated arrival and carried his head off. Unfortunately, there was a rotten tooth in the mouth of the severed head, which cut the leg of Sigurd, and he died from blood poisoning. And he caused us a lot of trouble too. And uh, what about the Duke of Clarence, a bit later on, 1478? Yes, he annoyed his brother, King Edward IV of England, by leading a treasonous conspiracy against him. He was given the possibility and the right of a private execution in the Tower of London and ended up being drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine. So there are worse ways to go. It's nice to die with a smile on your face and a bubble on your mouth. I guess so. And a hundred years later, a slightly less important person called Hans Steininger, the burgomaster in Bavaria, died when he broke his neck by tripping over his own beard. The beard, which was four and a half feet long at the time, was usually kept rolled up in a leather pouch. Well, I've always thought that's what ZZ Top should do, as I've always been slightly fearful in any live gig I've seen them at that they were going to do exactly the same with their beards. Yeah, and then a few years after that, the very unfortunate Marco Bragadin, who was the Venetian captain general in Farmagusta in Cyprus, was gruesomely killed by the Ottomans, who took the city. He was dragged around the walls with sacks of earth and stone on his back. Then he was tied to a chair and hoisted to the yardarm of the Turkish flagship, where he was exposed to the taunts of the sailors. And finally, he was taken to his place of execution in the main square, tied naked to a column and flayed alive. His skin was stuffed with straw and sewn together and reinvested with his military insignia and then paraded around mocking him. This trophy was often hoisted on the masthead of the personal galley of the Ottoman commander, Mustafa Pasha. It was eventually the body, the skin, the skin of the body, was eventually stolen in 1580 by a Venetian seaman who brought it back to Venice, where it was received as a returning hero. There's obviously a very dark imagination behind that one. And don't, don't forget, it was another Mustafa Pasha who led the forces of the Ottomans in the Great Siege of Malta. Indeed. And a little bit later, in 1675, some poor Sikhs came to a terrible end due to the orders of the Mughal emperor. One of them was executed by being bound between two pillars and sawn in half, while his younger brother was wrapped in cotton wool soaked in oil and set on fire. And the third boiled in a cauldron full of water and then roasted over a block of charcoal. Brothers together, eh? I guess so. So now we come on to more modern times, uh, the 19th, 20th century. As I said earlier, Tom, the less democratic nations end up having more atrocities, more violent overthrow. You know, they call it in modern parlance the iron horsemen, those who seize power. And if you go to Africa today, for example, most of those leaders out there die in office, and that's because they're never voted democratically out of their positions. So, of course, you're going to have more violence because the only way to access money, to access means of production and the wealth of those nations and to put it in your bank accounts overseas is by seizing power. And you see that starting in the 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many countries now um, have dictators in power who are violently overthrown. In the late 19th century, in Morocco, for example, there were two viziers, the Jame brothers, who were known for their cruelty and unpleasantness. Their star fell when the sultan changed 
and they ended up being tied back to back in prison in this terrible dungeon, very hot, very unpleasant. And one of them died, and the other one kept on being chained to him for quite some time with the rotting corpse of his brother next to him. And after 14 years, when that brother was released, apparently he was a broken man. That's very surprising. It is slightly. And then we move into the 20th century. Yes, well, people's level of behaviour doesn't improve, as we know. And the Amir of Afghanistan is a fine example. Here was a man who dressed in a Norfolk jacket and plus fours with friends of Edward VII and a lot of the Aristos in England. And yet he was an absolute psychopath. Uh, he once heard about uh, a young woman running off with a man and he had her boiled alive and forced the bloke to drink her broth before he was put to death. That was the sort of person he was. In 1907, he went to a Durbar in India and was incredibly impressed at how the Indian troops marched and their discipline and the abilities of their band. And he got back to Kabul and promptly fired his chief of the defence staff. In fact, when I say fired, I mean fired. He fired him from a cannon. And so it's hardly surprising the Amir was later uh, assassinated by a rally, like so many of them were. And well-deserved a beastly end for a beastly person. Yes, and that seems to be the pattern for a lot of what has happened in Afghanistan. And it's as I said earlier, if you have a sort of feudal throwback society that doesn't change, if there's no democracy, if it's tribal, if it's clan-based, if it has violence, if it's based on blood feuds, that is going to permeate through the fabric of society until the end of time. And you get that in Afghanistan all the way down the years. Uh, I once read the diary of a friend of mine's ancestor, Brigadier General Henry Brooke, who took over the Kandahar garrison in 1880, just as the Second Afghan Revolt blew up. And it's fascinating to see what he wrote. And the two things that I remember were, firstly, he said, the average Afghan is born a lying, cheating, murdering scoundrel. And the second thing he wrote was, they being mountain men and wearing sandals and shirts and we wearing heavy riding boots and spurs, we were unable to catch them. And you look at those two lines and you think, now I wonder which ones are applicable today because there's no doubt that the society of Afghanistan today is still feudal, is still very stuck in the past, is clan-based, is basically blood feud-based. The Taliban and hardline Islam grasps very easily onto that structure, that patriarchal, cruel structure. And that's why it's so hard to expunge from the Afghanistan of today. There's actually a Rudyard Kipling poem that sums it up pretty neatly about what it was like to be a soldier at the time and why you did not want to be captured by the local tribesmen. And again, it's true of today. You don't want to fall into the hands of the enemy. And it's true what Henry Brooks said, that it was very difficult to catch them then, and it's certainly very difficult to catch them now. And here is an extract from The Young British Soldier by Rudyard Kipling. If your officer's dead and the sergeants look white, remember it's ruin to run from a fight. So take open order, lie down and sit tight. 
and wait for supports like a soldier. Wait, wait, wait like a soldier. Wait, wait, wait like a soldier. Wait, wait, wait like a soldier. Soldier of the Queen. When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women come out to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your gold like a soldier. Go, go, go like a soldier. Go, go, go like a soldier. Go, go, go like a soldier. Soldier of the Queen. If you want an example of beastly ends to beastly people in Afghanistan, you need go no further than Najibullah, the puppet and former president of Afghanistan. He fell from grace in the early 90s. He resigned, was forced to resign when the Mujahideen were moving in on Kabul and Northern Alliance and the Taliban were heading for the Afghan center. And people like Massoud offered him passage out, but he refused. Maybe he didn't trust the Northern Alliance by that stage because they were rocketing the UN compound in which Najibullah was hiding. Eventually, it was the Taliban who turned up in September 96 and simply dragged Najibullah and his brother away. They tortured him to death, castrated him, did unspeakable things to him, and then dragged the two bodies through the streets of Kabul behind trucks and hang them from lampposts outside the presidential palace with money stuffed in their mouths as an example of what happens when you have someone who is considered a puppet of foreign powers. That was really the start of even more atrocity and barbarism in Afghanistan. That's what the Taliban do. That's what they trade in. As can be seen, uh, the Pashtuns have no love for anyone who is backed by Tajiks or Uzbeks. And this is one of the continuing problems of Afghanistan because it's tribal and clan-based. It's very difficult to see the seeds of democracy being planted there. Well, we should probably shift ourselves from Afghanistan north and west towards Russia. Yes, Russia too, in political terms, has very little of what is called reserves of commitment by political scientists, uh, i.e. they don't have a tradition or any length of period or knowledge of liberal democracy or freedom of thought or equality before the law, freedom of the press, or a fair and balanced legal system. All those things, all those legs that support uh, democracy, and neither is a free press something that the Russians know very much about, certainly not today. So whether it was Tsarist times and the secret police then, or Putin's times and the secret police now, uh, very little has actually changed. Well, we know that Rasputin caused a lot of trouble a hundred years ago when he was very much the mystic to the royal family, to the Tsar. He came to a rather long, drawn-out end. Um, he was consuming cake and wine, which had been laced with cyanide, but appeared not to be affected by the poison. He was then shot in the chest, and they thought that had killed him. Uh, but he leapt up and attacked the person who shot him, freed himself and fled. He was followed into a courtyard before being shot again and it collapsing into a snowbank. The conspirators then wrapped his body and dropped it into the river. 
And I think that body was wrapped in chains. And apparently when it was found later, it looked as though he'd escaped from the chains and had actually survived long enough to try and get to the surface, but eventually he had drowned. So that's the sort of thing that happens in Russia. And Yusupov, the prince who tried to kill him, was a very strange uh, transvestite who ended up, I think, dying in Paris. But uh, he was one of those sort of white Russians who who managed to get away from the revolution. Uh, Rasputin was one of the casualties on the way of that. You can see that later on, that if you're linked to authoritarian regimes or regimes that are unstable, that you're going to come a cropper at some stage. And all the KGB chiefs around Stalin and later on tend to have come to a sticky end. If you look at people like Nikolai Yezov, the bloody dwarf who arranged so many of the purges in the 30s, who was steeped in blood. He was five foot tall with a crippled leg. He was a monstrous little creature. And he ended up being tortured and shot uh, by his successors on the orders of Stalin. And later, KGB chiefs also came to a sticky end. If you look at Lavrenti Beria, who ran the NKVD during the war and was an appalling character. He was a sexual predator, a rapist, a murderer. Again, like Yezov, was involved in the murder of hundreds of thousands of people. He was instrumental in putting NKVD punishment battalions behind the Soviet lines at Stalingrad to prevent anyone retreating. And he ended up falling foul of people like Khrushchev when Stalin died. He was known for having young women snatched off the streets, brought round to his house, and where he would rape them. And on the way out, he'd get his bodyguards to give them bouquets of flowers to make it look as if it had all been consensual. Uh, He was tortured and eventually shot through the forehead by a general. And apparently he was on his knees begging for mercy and blubbing and obviously at last getting the same comeuppance that he had meted out to so many of his rivals and to so many innocents uh, over the years. So another beastly end for a beastly person. And we'll see what happens to Putin and his cronies eventually, because again, where you don't have a legitimate chain of succession, where you don't have people voted in and out of power, you are going to get a power struggle. And invariably in places like Russia, it's going to turn bloody. If you're talking lack of democracy, Jamie, then I think Africa has to be right up at the top. Along with terrible torture and death, uh, not only of leaders, but also of so many innocents. And to be honest, I don't see too many people taking the knee for all those millions mutilated and murdered out there. Maybe hypocrisy and virtue signalling doesn't travel that well. But so much in Africa, like everywhere else where you get real barbarity and torture and mutilation, uh, tends to go hand in glove with tribalism, with lack of democracy, with serious autocracy and corruption. It goes back a long way. I mean, if you think of Shaka Zulu, Shaka Zulu, who was murdered by attackers in 1828, apparently when his mother died, had 7,000 people put to death because he felt they weren't grieving enough for his mother. He banned the milking of cows, the planting of crops, uh, because that was really part of the grieving process as far as he was concerned. But then, of course, that was the staple food supply of his people. So it's hardly surprising that he was butchered in the end as well. But you travel on to the modern era, 
and you go to countries like Liberia and you couldn't actually make it up. I mean, it's incredible how so few of their presidents have ended up being democratically deposed from office. Most of them end up being tied to stakes on the beach and bayoneted with their families, just as happened to President Tubman and his family in 1971. You take someone like Samuel Doe, who was the dictator there, who in 1990, in his own turn, was overthrown by Prince Y. Johnson, uh, one of the cohorts and fellow travellers of Charles Taylor. And Samuel Doe's death was videoed and it was a pretty appalling thing. Uh, he was tortured for 12 hours by Y. Johnson, who was sitting in a chair just drinking a beer, as Samuel Doe had his ears and fingers cut off and was forced to eat them. That was considered a sort of voodoo ritual and a humiliation that was perfectly normal in those circumstances. And Samuel Doe's team of 80 bodyguards had all been butchered outside. And that was Liberia for you. And Liberia also threw up characters like General Butt Naked, who used to go into action with child soldiers alongside him in the battle. And he was butt naked. So we all laugh and find it incredibly funny when we go to Book of Mormon and there's a General Butt fucking naked. But that's actually based on a real life figure. And guess what? General Butt Naked became a pastor and started preaching Christianity and the virtues of love and forgiveness. Uh, it's always easy to do that with hindsight. Oof. And there are others too, aren't there, Jamie? Oh, yes. Africa keeps on giving. I mean, if you think of the African leaders who have ended up eating people or the parts of people, you had Bokassa in the Central African Republic who bankrupted his nation with a coronation uh, resembling and replicating that of Napoleon in France. He was believed to have snacked on the body parts of small children kept in his fridge. He certainly killed a hundred children who weren't wearing his logo on their school blazers. You then get Idi Amin, who was believed to have snacked on human body parts. I remember a friend of mine who had lived in Uganda who kept on talking about the electricity going out because bodies kept clogging the hydroelectric dam. And these were really the hearts of darkness. Even today, you get despots like Teodoro Obiang of Equatorial Guinea, and his reputation is absolutely terrible. This is a man who is believed to have crucified people on the way from the airport. This is the man who ate his uncle Francis when he deposed him in a coup. He's certainly known to have eaten the brains and testicles of rivals. This is what he's known for. He comes from the ironically named Fang tribe, and they were cannibals in their day. So he's continuing uh, that process. Apparently, he believes that eating human body parts, apparently he ate his uncle's liver to start with. He believes that eating the testicles and brains of his rivals uh, will increase his sexual potency. But this is what you're dealing with. But he remains in power, partly because the West can't afford to see that part of Africa fall into the hands of the Chinese or the Russians. It's no accident that there's a lot of light crude oil from that region that goes and gets refined in Texas. The National Security Agency have a very large listening post on the island of Sao Tome, pretty nearby. So we need that area to be stable. So we end up having to hold our noses while these 
dictators who are thoroughly corrupt, utterly barbaric, and depraved uh, continue on their merry way. And Obiang has now been in power for 41 years. Is still a monster. His family grow rich on the back of that country. But Africa is Africa, and we all seem to think that this is acceptable, and this is the way things have always been. So we've seen a little bit about what's wrong with the world, both in the past and even today. As a postscript, Jamie, there's always capital punishment, isn't there? Yes, and there are loads of lists of capital punishments that have gone terribly wrong, of people with flames coming out of their ears on the electric chair, coming round in the gas chamber. I mean, it's, it's, it's a litany of woe and mismanagement and things have gone wrong with chemicals and electrics. But the one that we perhaps ought to concentrate on is really the demise, the beastly end for so many of Saddam Hussein's fellow creatures in Iraq, including Chemical Ali, Ali Hassan al-Majid, who was known as Chemical Ali, had about eight death sentences against him in the end. He was involved in the killing of the Kurds at Halabja with poison gas in the suppression of the Shias down in southern Iraq. When he died in 2010, he was hanged. And of course, there's no peer point around today. There's no professional who's really good at doing the long drop method of hanging. It was Chemical Ali, I think, whose head came off when he was hanged. And Saddam Hussein's head who ne- that nearly came off when he was hanged. So it slightly reminds me of that famous Laurel and Hardy joke from the 1940s when, and I'm slightly giving the punchline away here, when Laurel says, my uncle died when he fell through a trapdoor. And Hardy goes, say, was he building a house. And Laurel goes, no, they were hanging him. (laughs) It's actually the only funny joke I know from the 1940s. But (laughs) Thank God for that. (laughs) But you can honestly say that that was a beastly end for a beastly person. What those Iraqi dictators did and what the sons of Saddam Hussein did were truly dreadful. As we've said throughout this podcast, that if you don't have smooth transitions of power, if you don't have democratic overthrow and the right to get rid of people, you are always going to end up with bloody endings. So there we go. Our sixth bloody object is a fragment of Hitler's Reich Chancellery. For it was in a bunker located in the grounds of that building that the Führer took his own life and the Nazi empire collapsed into oblivion. Hitler and Eva Braun had taken cyanide and Adolf a bullet for the team. So we can say that some of these beastly people do indeed meet beastly ends, but sadly not all of them. Although, Jamie, one hopes they are roasting in hell. The trick to staying alive is free and fair elections and democracy. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.